new on Curiosity Stream. The Nazis' true strength was their propaganda. You had posters, you had banners, you had music. See how a mastery of messaging galvanized Hitler's march to power in Project Nazi Blueprints of Evil. And if space is the final frontier, is it destined to be monetized? The battle between space exploration and galactic capitalism may have already begun. Don't miss Space Greed. Watch now on Curiosity Stream. Annual plans are $20, just $1.67 a month. Visit CuriosityStream.com. Hello and welcome to episode 37 of the History of Skipton with me, Ian Lockwood, author of the book, The History of Skipton. This episode's a new segment of Skipton's history. It's education. Now, we have a few listeners from outside the UK, so perhaps a little explanation. Skipton still has what is called a selective system of education. What that means is that in year six... Children in Skipton and surrounding areas sit in an entrance exam and the top 30% or so are offered a place at a grammar school. The boys at Ermistead and the girls at Skipton Girls High School. This selective system is now pretty rare in the UK. Only Skipton and Ripon have it in the rest of Yorkshire. And in later episodes I'll explain why it still survives here. And I'll also be looking at primary education and adult education later on. But this episode is focusing on Ermisteads, the school for boys, which dates back to 1492. Today, Ermisteads has a reputation for its outstanding exam results. A cynic would say, well, it's obvious that its exam results will be better than average, if it only takes the top 30% of pupils and tells the rest to go elsewhere. But that's a debate for another time, another place. What is undeniable is that the school has a high reputation. However, as I will show, this was not always the case. Indeed, for many years, Ermisteads was renowned for scandal and survived today only by the skin of its teeth. Let's go back to the start. In 1492, Peter Toller, the rector of Linton in Craven and the Archdeacon of Craven, left in his will lands in Skipton and also other land in Addingham, Eastby, Drafton and Hellifield to provide for the upkeep of a chantry in Skipton's Holy Trinity Church. A chantry was a side chapel, and income from rents from Toller's land would pay for a priest to chant prayers and psalms for the soul of the person paying for it. The more prayers, the quicker sins would be forgiven, and the sooner the soul of the departed would get to heaven. A sort of medieval version of the rich paying to jump the queue. Typically, the priest whose task it was to say these daily prayers needed other sources of income and teaching was more often than not that source of extra income. We know little about Toller's Chantry School, not even where it took place if it was conducted in the church itself. All we know is that it existed 
and the continuous line can be traced from 1492 to the institution which has, across the generations, educated so many Skipton schoolboys. The Chantry School survived through the reign of Henry VII and Henry VIII, but under the reign of the next king, Edward VI, England lurched towards full-blown Protestantism. One of the acts of the boy king's regime was to confiscate Chantry endowments on the grounds that they were based on superstition. The Chantries were closed. This was done via a royal inquiry, and in 1548 it looked into the Skipton Chantry, and this inquiry has left valuable information about Toller's school. It had 120 scholars, which is a good number given the size of the town, and was run by the schoolmaster, Stephen Ellis, using the £4, 16 shillings and 4 pence, which came from the rents from Toller's endowment. That land that Toller had given was grabbed by the Crown to be sold off at a later date. But the Crown agreed to continue paying for the upkeep of the school, an indication perhaps that its good work was recognised. At this point, 1548, a lawyer called William Ermistead enters the picture. He drew up a legal document which would provide funding for the upkeep of a school in Skipton. It is reasonable to assume that he was from Skipton and had been a scholar in the town and he wanted to put a little bit back. Whatever his connection, it was this document which puts the school which bears his name on a sound financial footing. Significantly, the money was for the upkeep of the school with no added strings of paying for his soul which had prompted the confiscation of Toller's land. Those deeds set out how he wanted the school to be run. It was to be open every day, except feast days, from 6am to noon and 2pm to 6pm. The pupils were to study Latin, and in particular the poets Virgil and Ovid, and they were to say prayers every day. Failure to say prayers would incur a fine for the schoolmaster of 20 pence, that's 8 new pence in modern currency, for each day missed. The master was also required to be on hand to assist the vicar in church services. Hermistead's endowments provided the master with £9.15 shillings a year to run the school. Added to this was £4.04 four shillings a year from the grant when Edward VI confiscated Toller's lands. So this brought a considerable income of just £14 a year for the master. One key stipulation in Hermistead's deed was to have a profound effect in later years. The choice of schoolmaster was to be made by the vicar and church wardens of Holy Trinity. However, if they had not received, reached a decision within one month, the appointment was to be made by the fellows of Lincoln College in Oxford. This is where Hermistead had studied. And if Oxford had not made a decision after a month, it passed to St Paul's Cathedral, and then back to Skipton's, uh, the vicar and the church wardens, after another month had passed. Now this 
one month deadline and passing on the decision to others was to have serious implications for the school in the future. As the school's historian A.M. Gibbon points out, a month was a remarkably short space of time given the slow communications and transport of 1548. So, by the Elizabethan era, a new school had been established teaching boys from the neighbourhood what was then considered an essential education with a heavy emphasis on Latin and Greek. The school also moved into new purpose-built premises on New Market Street. For almost 100 years, the grammar school continued its work, but it was closed during the Civil War. Skipton was a royalist-supporting town, surrounded by parliamentary troops, and the school ceased to function. A document of 1654, after the Civil War, reveals that the headmaster, Thomas Barker, was chased away, and the school was used as a barracks by parliamentary troops. Rents from the school lands were uncollected, and the buildings were treated with little respect by a hostile soldiery. But when the war ended, Henry Doughty was appointed headmaster in 1649. So the school was back up and running, only to run into a major controversy in 1654 caused by those powers of Lincoln College, Oxford, to appoint a master if the church wardens failed to make a choice in sufficient time. Why or how a vacancy arose and was unfilled in 1654 is a mystery. What we do know is that Lincoln College appointed Edward Brown as headmaster only for the decision to be met with exceptional hostility from particularly his usher, another word for assistant, at Skipton. The college complained to the parliamentary government of Oliver Cromwell. Their letter read, The said master hath been very much abused by the usher and sundry other loose persons to the endangering of his life. The school and schoolhouse are much in decay for want of necessary repairs. The effect of their bloody oaths and cruel threats did manifest themselves by encouraging the usher, whose inability and unfitness have ruined the school, with some other loose persons, to set upon the master in his said school, shut the door, and, as we are credibly informed, would have undoubtedly slain him, but he was rescued out of their hands. Well, just how much Brown's life was really in danger is unclear, but the Lincoln College officials wanted a commission of inquiry set up to impose Brown upon Skipton. They also wanted to inspect the books on income from land endowments, because how the rents have been disposed of is unknown. Perhaps herein lies the answer to why the usher and sundry other loose persons did not want this outsider in charge, as the petition continues. They make merchandise of the estate, diverting it from its proper use for which it was intended, and converting it to their own private use. Oliver Cromwell, the Lord Protector, did agree to the inquiry. But if it did take place, all records have been lost. Even the identity of this Edward Brown is shrouded in mystery. School records list him as the headmaster 
from 1654 to 1656. But we simply do not know how or even if he was forcibly installed and the usher removed. The restoration of the monarchy with Charles II in 1660 saw Thomas Barker, the royalist headmaster who had been unceremoniously turfed out of the school by those parliamentary and troops during the Civil War, was reinstated to the post after a 14-year gap. The grammar school was in existence, if not exactly flourishing, for the next 60 years until the next crisis. A letter from Lord Thanet, owner of Skipton Castle and dated February the 14th, 1726, shows the low status the school had acquired. The letter is canvassing support for a new headmaster called Clark. It reads, As the ruin of the school of Skipton is entirely owing to the great neglect and idle behaviour of the late schoolmaster, Mr. Leedle, by which the town of Skifton has suffered so much by all gentlemen of the country withdrawing their sons from the said school. Lord Thanet was hoping that Clark, if he was installed as the new headmaster, would be the man to restore the school's good name. Now one issue was that the school had become a lucrative source of wealth for the master and was an attractive posting for anyone who might have an eye for an easy life, albeit in what was undoubtedly a small town with few attractions. The reason for this was that the rents from the various lands attached to Hermistead's endowment had steadily increased, while the size, quality and standards of the school had not. Indeed, the £9 rental income from Hermistead's day in the mid-16th century had risen to at least £150 and probably a great deal more. We do know that it was worth £600, in 1821. So the schoolmaster was maybe not rich, but certainly comfortably off. One person attracted to the post was John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, whose graduation from, yes, Lincoln College, coincided perfectly with a vacancy created by the death of the headmaster Richard Liedel. Wesley must have been aware about the vacancy and perhaps proposed for it, and he had high hopes because he sent a letter to his mother in 1727, which reads, One advantage at least my degree has given me. I am now at liberty, and shall be in a great measure for some time, to choose my own employment, and as I believe I know my own deficiencies best. On Saturday next, I propose beginning an entirely different life with relation to the management of my expenses from what I have hitherto done. A school in Yorkshire, 40 miles from Doncaster, was proposed to me lately, on which I shall think more whether may I have it or no. A good salary is annexed to it, so that in a year's time it is probable all my debts would be paid, and I should have money beforehand. But what has made me wish for it most is the frightful description, as they call it. Some gentlemen who know the place gave me of it yesterday. The town, Skipton in Craven, 
lies in a little vale, so pent up between two hills that it is scarcely accessible on any side, so that you can expect little company from without, and within there is none at all. This letter is revealing on several levels. Firstly, Wesley is making a vow to stay clear of debts. Secondly, it shows that he sees Hermisteads as a cushy number, providing a decent income. Finally, it paints a poor image of Skipton. Frightful! But this attracts Wesley, as it will remove him from temptation and enable him to pursue a life of meditation. But Wesley was not to be successful. The Skipton church wardens moved quickly. They rejected both Wesley and the Earl of Thanet's nominee and appointed an old boy of the school, William Banks, who came from and went into obscurity. The ever-growing riches associated with the headmastership was to create a further scandal and not long afterwards, in 1751, the headmaster for the previous 20 years, Matthew Wilkinson, died. One man with his eye on the prize was William West, who began offering bribes to the 12 church wardens in return for their vote for him as schoolmaster. His main rival was the Reverend Stephen Barrett, who was headmaster of Ashford School in Kent which is close to the Earl of Thanet's main residence at Hoffield, just outside Ashford. The Earl backed his neighbour, Barrett, and he was an Hermistead's old boy. But by now, the post was open to corruption, with church wardens expecting to be paid for their vote for the new headmaster. The Earl of Thanet expressed his horror at the corruption in correspondence with the Vicar of Carlton. He refers to the situation as amazing and deplorable and wrote, I heartily pity all gentlemen of the neighbourhood. It is in the power of a parcel of venal scoundrels to put in any wretch who will mount to their price. At first, Barrett was reluctant to pay the £100 in bribes, but changed his mind a few days later. In his correspondence, he suggests that pressure was put upon him at a private dinner with Lord Thanet, whose wife had recently died. To thwart West and prevent the school from further decline, he felt duty-bound to meet privately with some church wardens and offer to meet their asking price, although he stressed the need to keep the matter secret in case word leaked out and legal action to prevent his appointment was taken. Despite having the promise of eight church wardens, Barrett was racked with doubt. He suddenly withdrew his candidature, either from guilt or from fear that the church wardens would change their minds. Almost at the same time, West too pulled out of the race, perhaps realising that the church wardens had deserted his cause. Barrett and the Earl supported a new candidate, Reverend George Chamberlain while the Reverend Thomas Carr, the vicar of Bolton Abbey, and the master of the school at Bolton Abbey, decided to throw his hat into the ring. Carr had been operating as Barrett's representative on the spot, while the latter was down in Kent, and so he knew all about the bribes. 
But the delays had triggered the right of Lincoln College, Oxford, to make an appointment, and they duly did so. Reverend, Reverend Samuel Plummer. He set off for Skipton and arrived only to find the school locked and bolted, with Reverend Carr inside, refusing to give up the school. It remained closed from November 1751 to the summer of 1752, thus posing a further damaging blow to its reputation. Plummer seems to have tried to force an entry, but Carr had an ally in the assistant master, a Mr Colton, who was plied with drink and given a salary increase from £25 to £40 a year. Plummer, nevertheless, appears to have had a high opinion of Colton. I doubt not his good conduct and care of the boys during their banishment and persecution. I can't help giving it that term, as I look upon such proceedings to be not only injudicious, but cruel and dishonourable. Now, this suggests that Colton was continuing to teach the boys on another site, while the school was closed because of the dispute between Carr and Plummer. The dispute ended suddenly. After some nine months of refusing to allow Plummer entry into the school, Carr caved in. A deal was reached, by which Carr would succeed the more elderly Plummer as headmaster. And this duly happened when Plummer died in 1780. How the church wardens were made a party to this scheme is not known, unless it was them that who had brokered the compromise of 1752. Just a little footnote on Plummer while passing, because he played a key role in the town's development. He sold school land on the west of the town near Airville for the construction of the Leeds-Liverpool Canal, and used the proceeds to extend the school. Plummer was also on the board of the company which ran the Turnpike Trust, which built the Leeds to Kendall Road through Skipton. And if you go into Holy Trinity Nave, you'll see a substantial memorial plaque to Plummer. The scandal of two teachers, religious ministers at that, fighting over who should be head of Skipton's school was bad enough. Incredibly, if to happen for a second time just a few years later. Plummer, as we've said, was succeeded by Carr, and when Carr died in 1792, that was the spark for another disputed succession. By this time, the school's fortunes were at a very low ebb. The curriculum was overloaded with Latin grammar at a time when science and maths were inspiring the Industrial Revolution. The church wardens were in effect corrupt, selling their votes to the highest bidder whenever a headmaster vacancy arose, and there was no financial provision anywhere for maintaining or improving the school. The headmaster pocketed all income from endowment rents, and he was expected to pay for the school's building and running costs out of these, so there was no incentive to improve the buildings without reducing his own income. And as more pupils meant more expense, he was better off with the few, as few pupils as possible. So when Carr died, four candidates emerged 
to enrich themselves off the school's rents, which were now worth £320 per annum. The four were all Church of England ministers. They were, number one, Carr's son, William. Number two, the curate at Holy Trinity, Richard Withnell. Number three, the son of Lord Thanet's agent at Skipton Castle, John Healis. And number four, the vicar of Addingham, John Coates. The curate, Withnell, was quickest off the mark. He had the backing of the vicar of Holy Trinity, Reverend Marsden, who would save money by appointing a new, younger curate on a lower salary. And on the very day Carr died, Withnell had his nominations papers signed by Marsden. That night, he gathered five church wardens at the Holton East pub, run by a sixth church warden called John Kendall. One of them, Thomas Ianson, is alleged to have claimed that Reverend Coates had offered him £100 for his vote. However, by the end of the evening, Withnell had all six signatures of the church wardens on his nomination form to add to the vicar of Skipton's. Armed with seven of the twelve votes, Withnell attended a meeting of the church wardens held on November the 23rd, 1793, just four days after Carr's death, and handed over a short note. It read, Sirs, I do hereby require and demand of you to induct me in possession of the free grammar school in Skipton, of which I am appointed headmaster. Signed, Richard Withnell. The other five church wardens cannot have been entirely surprised, for they had already contacted a leading London barrister about the legality of the meeting in the Holtonies pub. Withnell duly secured his induction, but the keys to the school were now at the castle and in the possession of Thomas Healis, father of the rival candidate number three, John Healis. He refused to hand them over on the grounds that the election had been corrupt. Withnell was not to be denied so easily. He simply hired a locksmith and broke into the school. But Widnell had one more hurdle to overcome. He needed a licence to teach, and that could only be given by the Archbishop of York, and on November 25th he set off to obtain it. Word had already reached the Archbishop about the dubious proceedings in Skipton, and any hopes Widnell had that receiving his licence would be a mere formality were to be disappointed. Withnell had not been to university, and the Archbishop insisted on examining him. Perhaps it speaks volumes about Withnell's abilities that he indignantly refused and headed home to Skipton. By the time the four-week deadline for a local decision had to be made, the position was unclear, and so the Fellows of Lincoln College, Oxford, exercised their right to nominate their own man, Reverend William Bryant. But within a week, and before he could set out for Skipton, Bryant had the misfortune to die. Back in Skipton, Widnell called another meeting of the church wardens. It was a stormy affair. One of Widnell's signatories, James Ward, began to prevaricate, and angry words with the vicar were exchanged. 
the vicar, in a violent passion with a paper in his hand and with a loud threatening voice, demanded that Ward must sign. It took large amounts of drink to persuade Ward to sign the paper and secure a majority for Withnell for the second time. Meanwhile, back in Oxford, Lincoln College had found a new con candidate, the Reverend Thomas Gartham, and claimed that their candidate had precedence. Withnell had possession of the school, but no licence to teach. Gartham had a licence to teach, but it was a long way away. Healis had the not unimportant support of the Earl of Thanet, but, like the fourth candidate Coates, no votes. Enter the lawyers. From late 1792 until judgment was given in 1795, the school was again shut. Eventually the case was settled in Withnell's favour on the grounds that the church wardens were not required to be unanimous in their choice and therefore the curate had secured the majority required to elect him. However, he still had no licence and the archbishop stuck to his position of refusing to grant one unless and until Withnell could prove his knowledge of the classics. The Lord Chief Justice... Lord Kenyon dealt a death blow to Widnell's position when he ruled It is of great importance to the country that no schoolmaster should be licensed who is not properly qualified in every respect and if Widnell be qualified he may be admitted after an examination for this is not an absolute refusal by the Archbishop to license but merely a suspension of the license until Withnell shall submit himself to be examined. Whoever will examine the state of the grammar schools in different parts of this kingdom will see to what a lamentable condition most of them are reduced and would wish that those who have any superintendence or control over them had been as circumspect as the Archbishop of York has been on this occasion. It was not just a damning blow to Withnell, whose election was deemed correct, but who was also ruled to be unqualified. This judgment was an indictment also of Ermisteads and of the grammar school system, as the Lord Chief Justice used this ruling to attack the teaching at these schools throughout the country. The Lord Chief Justice had delivered a withering verdict on the neglect, decay, and greed, which was to be found in grammar schools in general and Ermisteads in particular. Withnell had to admit defeat, and the keys were handed over to Gartham in November 1796. So here we are, at the dawn of the 19th century, and was Ermisteads about to leave behind its dismal record of greed, scandal, and corruption? Not at all. There's plenty more sordid detail to follow in the next podcast. Meanwhile, thank you for listening. Do tell your friends and acquaintances about the podcast, and you can contact me on the website www.historyofskipton.co.uk.
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner.